As we come back together this morning, we continue our look at the book of Revelation uh, as we are uh, going through the church year readings leading up to Pentecost. And we uh, looked three weeks ago at heaven and earth and how it is God's desire to see heaven and earth restored to a level of unity where the distinction between the two that we feel that is such a hard barrier between the place where God dwells and where we dwell becomes more permeable. And for the Jewish folks uh, in the first century, that place where heaven and earth met was the temple. It was that place where the line between where God dwelt and where His people existed in their sinful state became permeable. But even then, it was only one person. It was the priestly uh, group who could come even closer. The temple was a meeting place, but the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, were not free for all to enter. And what we have then is Jesus teaching that He will become the temple, that He will become that meeting place, that through His work He will be the one who in ever greater degrees, breaks down the wall between heaven and earth that God might fellowship with His people and His people rest easy and delighting in the presence of their God. And so we started Revelation with a celebration of that reality and a picture of a throne room that was increasingly a place of peace and a place of celebration. We looked last week at the conflicting uh, imagery of a lion and a lamb, and then not just a lamb, but a lamb that was slain, and the powerful reality that God comes into this world, and everything we are normally taught about how power works, and money works, and how one gets ahead is undone by one who both embodies the full power of a lion, and yet for earthly means presents himself as a lamb and not only just a lamb but the Passover lamb the lamb whose blood was shed that it might cover our doorposts and our hearts that we might have peace with God and that is victory that is power that is how evil and death are undone and everything that we learn from here on out is both an explanation of what happens when you use power in an earthly sense the might of money and guns and violence to assert power how that has an end in itself a calamitous horrible end And how in the midst of that, as God's people continue to give themselves in line with the Lamb, that God brings honor and glory and peace and restoration to His people and then to His creation. So this morning we will look a little bit more at that. We're jumping ahead to chapter 7 of Revelation. We're going to read verses 9 through 17. Hear now God's word. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around in the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne and will shepherd, be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a God who wipes away every tear. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word now in worship, as we come to meditate on it, we pray that your spirit would guide and encourage the preaching of your word. Lord, that it would be an encouragement even in the midst of some of the troubling imagery of Revelation. And in the midst, may your people's encouragement bring glory to you and anything that is said that is not true May it be quickly forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So it's important, I think, for our context here to think about where we've come from. We're in the midst of the opening of the sixth seal. And the fifth seal, one uh, chapter back, is where we were introduced to the martyrs, the souls that, had been, uh, that were under the altar. And they cry out, how long, O Lord? And then the Lord brings them out from under the altar and robes them in white robes and they begin to celebrate and they begin to praise, not celebrate, they begin to worship God. And so now we've had a scene where the fullness of Israel has been brought in. There's this wonderful numbering of uh, every tribe of the 12 tribes. And there's a fullness of God's covenant people that's brought in. And then the scene turns to the enfolding of the nations. And there, this particular group, who've come through great travail, great difficulty, because, according to the chapter before, they lived out and preached the good news of the Word of God. The Word of God always brings challenge or encouragement. The Word of God can never be a neutral event. It can't just sit there and have nothing happen. Not if it is lived out and preached. And we know that throughout human history. And of course, there are no better examples uh, on a day like this than some of the great mothers of the faith who prayed faithfully and labored faithfully for their children. And of course... One of the great ones is St. Monica, 
the mother of St. Augustine, who lived with a man driven by power and money, who apparently stayed a pagan his entire life. Even as she faithfully served, according to her son, doing charity work, offering care for the poor and the widow, living out her gospel faith. And initially what it did is it repulsed her son. And he embraced the licentious, power-oriented life of his father. And he pursued all of the things that his father saw as valuable and powerful and significant in the Roman world. And he came to the end of himself. His mother faithfully prayed, offered herself, one time and again, not only before the Lord, but in her faithful service. And her son was blessed. His son came to faith. It is often that counterintuitive reality where it is those in a society who are viewed to be weak when they are appropriate the power of the gospel, do the most transformation. Mother's Day was initially started as a way to try and represent and gain national knowledge for the fact that women didn't have a vote and legally had very few rights in the United States. The first Mother's Day was officially 1914. It wasn't until 1920 that those mothers could actually vote. It wasn't meant so much to be a sentimental remembrance of the wonderful realities of being loved and fed and cooked for by a mother, but the reality that those same mothers were not viewed as equal. And as the gospel moves forward, preaching the equality that we have, male and female, Greek, slave, or free, The divisions that are natural in power structures within a culture have no place within the throne room of grace. And we keep seeing people enfolded not by anything other than the grace of God. And the nations have been brought because they have experienced not the powerful, not the power of an army, The great tragedy of North Africa, where Augustine was from, probably a barber, North African descent, is that those great places where the church thrived, where the very doctrine of the Trinity was formed under Athanasius, where the underlying tenets of the Reformed faith in Augustine were fostered in North Africa, were then run over by the power of a military army, in the Muslim invasions. And it looks like the church is defeated. But see, the church has never gone, at least not when it's the church, at the point of a gun or a sword. It's most effective the way it is right now in China, not because it's imperialism, but because Chinese people are sharing the gospel with one another and there are now a million Chinese Christians And the state is now terrified and trying to institute a state church to control what's happening because the gospel is breaking loose in families in China. It happens in a counterintuitive way. People lose property, people lose freedom, people lose their life, and more people want to be Christians. 
The martyrs who are shown in this passage certainly desire justice. They cry out, how long, O Lord? Because the pain is real and nobody thinks it's fun. But the calling of the kingdom and service as presented in Revelation challenges much of how we think of the church going forward, particularly in a culture where we feel we have a fair amount of power, or at least thought we did. So there's three quick things that I want us to see in this passage. First of all, the kingdom moves forward and these saints are brought in and they live out the reality of the Lamb and the King and God through first how they got there, which is they were slain. Second, where salvation comes from. And third, what it means to be sheltered. So first, slain, then salvation, and finally sheltered. First, slain. Again, we've already jumped back to 6, verses 9 and 10, where we know that those under the altar are those who had perished because of their proclamation of God's Word. Which was, of course, if you're Stephen, preaching to Jewish folks, that Jesus did rise from the dead and that He was the Messiah. And so he challenged that cultural norm. And if you're Paul, who's getting slapped around regularly in various Roman cities and facing persecution, it's because you undermine the power of the idol industries in those cultures. You're confronting the idolatry of Caesar. You're confronting the idolatry of local pagan gods that you worship that are quite... uh, Too many words at once. I got time, right? I got Oh my God, I got plenty of time. There's economic reasons behind religion, right? There's always money to be made in a religion. And so when you undermine religion, whether it's a perversion of the Hebraic faith as it was unable to understand who Jesus was, or it's pagan faith, when you preach the gospel, you undermine those powers and they have a tendency to react defensively. Hence, tribulation and persecution. And the early church experienced it both from Romans, from common citizens, from the state, and from other believers as they wrestled with implementing this notion of sacrifice and love for the other, of following Jesus. Because, of course, what we have to do is if we jump from six we got to go back to four, which is it's not surprising that the saints under the altar, not on top of the altar, because the only person who would be on top of the altar would be the lamb that was slain. The only sacrifice that could actually bring salvation. Could we really expect that there would be an appreciable percentage of people who have followed the Lord, who would not end up following the Lord all the way. Can we imagine that it's surprising that the lamb that was slain might also have followers who following him had endured the same persecution? The very things that cause people to reject and fear Christ are the very things that we are called to embody and live. It shouldn't be a neutral event. Either those are going to be drawn to the reality of the power of the faith, what it means to be set free in Christ, what it means to 
no longer have to assume the religious duties of saving myself, whether I'm a materialist and I think salvation is financial security, or I'm religiously and spiritually oriented and I think salvation is somehow earning enough credit and being slightly nicer than the person next to me. The burden of personal salvation is crushing. You want to talk about sacrifice. You want to talk about being slain. Just imagine and remember what we do to one another in our desperate attempts to save ourselves. Salvation never comes without blood. The promise of the Gospel is that that blood is Christ's and not mine and not yours. The hope of the Gospel is we can stop taking the other's life. The martyrs are willing to give their life because they no longer have to take the life of another to save themselves. That their life is hid with Christ on high. You don't have to die so that I can be safe. I'm already safe. I'm already saved. The celebration is that salvation, verse 10, belongs to God and to the Lamb. Not to you and not to me. Not to the institutions that promise they can provide security and safety. This is the great challenge of the church ever since Constantine. There are upsides to not being persecuted by the state. There are also downsides to jumping into bed with those who promise that they can protect us because they have money or guns and give us tax rebates. The seduction of the church under the promise of safety within a state is not salvation. No one can offer us security and salvation but God and the Lamb. There is no safety outside of the kingdom. The seduction to find safety elsewhere is to find the same seduction as Elimelech. There is famine in the land, so I'm going to take my family, Naomi, and I'm going to go to Moab and try and find security outside of the promised land. And if you know the story of Ruth, everybody dies. Except for Naomi. There's no life outside the kingdom. And yet all of it will promise salvation. All of it will promise security. But salvation is from God, from the Lamb. Because no blood can save but the blood of Christ. Hence this awkward yet powerful picture of all of these saints having washed their clothes white in the blood of the Lamb. How different that is from the heroic notions of earthly power and kingdoms when we wash ourselves in the blood of our fallen enemies. We know we're victorious because we have defeated, beaten, won, killed more than have beaten us. The tragedy of not knowing how to uh, figure out a way to win except to count the bodies. The people who are poorer than I am. The people who have less prestige than I do. The people who are literally dead. The only thing that can get out the stain 
is the blood of Christ. Which then leads us to sheltered. There is tribulation. It assumes, the text does, that those who have gone through tribulation were hungry, were thirsty, and lacked shelter. Apparently, they were foolish enough, or wise enough, depending on which side of the text we're trying to focus on, to actually risk hunger in the preaching of the gospel in life and in work. They are apparently worried to risk thirst on behalf of following the Lamb. They apparently understood that they might have to give up their shelter to shelter another. There's something about the way that they lived. It wasn't that they couldn't have secured food or water or shelter. But they didn't have it. Because they followed the Lamb who was their good shepherd. And that's why we read on the same Sunday as this passage, Psalm 23. A shepherd who leads us through sometimes challenging landscape. But always with the sure promise that that is for our good. And it does lead us to streams of living water. And a feast in the presence of all those who thought they had defeated us. All of those who thought that putting us through the valley of the shadow of death would have sucked the life out of us and showed that our God was not as powerful as their God. And now we sit seated as we will soon at the Lord's table recognizing that that feast promises true salvation. Assures us that salvation has already been won for us. The Lamb becomes the shepherd and leads his people Yes, through some of the same trials, but also to the same power and assurance and security that comes because of God. Now, we may be tempted, and of course, a quick allusion, right? You, you got to grab this. This one's parentheses. But how amazing is it in this passage where every tribe, every nation, every tongue is gathered together. Some of them have been, they've been martyred. They are standing robed in the righteousness of Christ and the promise of living water comes. And John is the same way one who writes this passage, who wrote the passage about the Samaritan woman at the well. How can we not hear the echoes of Jesus wrestling with that woman who was not Jewish, promising her water where she would never thirst again. And now he sees in the heavenly vision that water being offered again, not just to one Samaritan woman, but to every nation. That's the shepherd we follow. The one who promises us water, living water. And he's been promising it to his people for generations. And as wonderful as that is, there is one more powerful picture in this passage that continues to press against any notion we might adopt, that the Father, that the Alpha and the Omega, that the God who sits enthroned might be somewhat unloving or dispassionate towards us. Who wipes away your tears? It's not Jesus. It's not the Lamb. 
Not that he wouldn't, not that he couldn't, not that he doesn't love you, but who takes that privilege? God gets off his throne. The Almighty, the Father, the first person of the Trinity, he is the one who wipes away every tear. All that he's asked you to do, all of the challenge, all of the difficulty, all of the steps of faith, all of the pain, real pain and suffering that He has asked you to endure for His glory and for the souls of others. Not that you save them, but you point them to a hope and a love that transcends life itself that is infinite and eternal. That suffering which you endure, which God respects and acknowledges and would never dispassionately ask you to do. This is not a far-off king suggesting that a bunch of people should ride out in the charge of the light brigade and get slaughtered and be remembered in some vague poem. This is a God who gets off and wipes the tears of everyone He has asked to endure for the kingdom. That's how passionate, that's how loving, that's how personal, not just Jesus, but every member of the Trinity, the Spirit that dwells within us, and the Father who gets off His throne to welcome you home, to put the ring on your finger, the best robe on your shoulders, to wipe away your tears and to assure you that He never left you nor forsook you, that the pain that you endured was felt by Him, never absent, but loving and present. Application for this sermon. I'm not, I'm not good at this. But I would contend that a vision of the dignity and the power of the gospel, the recognition that we have a king who loves us so much, but also honors us with the responsibility of being kingdom bringers, not simply bubble wrapping us for heaven, but believing that you have the power and the ability by His grace to endure and extend the kingdom, to weep with those who weep, to bear one another's burdens, that He honors you with the opportunity to suffer on behalf of the other, to be like Him, to bear His image. That's dignity. That's power. That's worth. You are loved and honored and respected as a vessel of His glory. That no suffering you go through is meaningless or does not have value and purpose, whether it is your expression of your own personal sufferings to others and how you bear the weight of that, whether it is sacrificing and putting yourself at risk and danger for another. None of that is ignored or minimized not just by Jesus, but by the King Himself, by God, by the Father, by the whole Trinity, honored and praised so that your tears, never forgotten, never ignored, but precious and honored. You have value and worth, not just in your successes, but in your brokenness and in your service in your pain and in your suffering. None of it lost. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word.
We thank you that you honor even the weakest among us. That you are our strength. We ask, Lord, not that we might uh, assume the honor of martyrdom. Lord, that is not something that we ask, nor would you ask us to ask for that. Lord, we just desire to in ever greater degrees be mindful of how we might be present in our moments, that you might be lifted up and glorified, that we might trust ourselves to you and therefore be able to be mindful of the ones around us, even as you are mindful of us. We pray that you would do this in and through us in whatever small ways are glorifying to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.